big idea, but so young. It will never work. Zero experience. We'll see. Welcome to Dorm Room to Boardroom, where the journey from campus to corporate isn't just a story. It's a roadmap for the next generation of game changers. I'm your host, Maddie Rifkin, CEO and founder of Mount. Join me for today's exciting discussion as we chat with Josh Gray, the CEO and co-founder of Artemis. Artemis is a platform that helps you get your data AI ready. Josh was recognized by the League of Innovators as a 30 under 30 Entrepreneur of the Year in 2023. While completing his Bachelor of International Business and Finance at Carleton University, he scaled and exited his first company, which is still operating today. He's now on to his second company and really talking about how his journey from zero to one on the first one got it acquired, how he was able to start self-funding his second company before he took VC money, money, and we just dive into all of it. Josh, welcome to the show. Josh, welcome to the show. Um, I'd love to give our audience some background on you. You're also new to the show and our first ever founder that actually has exited his first company while in college and are now on your second. So this is going to be an interesting conversation, unlike anyone else we've had on the podcast, because you have two startups under your belt. So um, your recap is probably going to be a bit different. Why don't you tell us about the first company you started, how old you were, when you were in college, uh, and then maybe what you're up to now? Yeah, so I started my first company when I was 19. Um, it was right when COVID started. So the idea was help, you know, stay home, support local businesses. Um, essentially, my co-founder and I, we put 10 local products into a small box, and then we would actually hand deliver those boxes to people's homes. Um, and so you'd get something from maybe a butcher shop, a local bakery, um, you know, a local cafe, maybe even, you know, a candle store or something like that. Um, we kind of do these surprise boxes. It was great for, you know, suppliers because they could move inventory when everything was shutting down. Um, and, you know, for other people who had more sit at home, they wanted to spend money, they could do so. Um, so built that, scaled it to about a million dollars in revenue. Um, and then I sold it within two years. And then I sold it the week I graduated university um, in April of 2022 with my half started my next company, Artemis, which what I'm working on right now. Um, it's a data platform that really helps automating data cleanup and assures kind of data quality. And I started that company based on pain points I'd experienced while scaling my first one. Um, so quite the journey. It was a, it was a ton of fun, lots of learnings, very different businesses, um, very different life cycles and all that sort of stuff, but happy to dive in more. Absolutely. And just for our listeners out there, what college were you attending? So I went to, I'm from Canada. Um, I went to Carleton University up in Ottawa. Um, it is like, I mean, it's pretty big. It's 35,000 students, uh, but it's not super well known. Um, but yeah, my background's in finance. So I studied fin inter um, international financial markets. Um, and then with a background, I actually minored in German. So that was a fun time. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so sounds like you're a very young founder. Common theme amongst people on dorm room to boardroom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I got my start when I was 12. So I know the story well. Love it. Um, but I guess... How did you know you wanted to be a founder? Was it something born into you and you're like, that's what I'm going to do? Or did it appear more when you got to college? I mean, I would never say I had the conversation with myself of I want to have a founder. I was really lucky that I built something that I thought was going to be a two-week project and it turned out to be a million-dollar business. Um, that was not by plan. 
I think as well, growing up, I grew up in a family that was very focused on, you know, solving problems, um, very solution-based, not problem-based. My parents, my dad was a civil, um, chemical engineer and he had always worked in smaller companies. He was kind of the number two at a lot of startups um, in the civil en- uh, sorry, chemical engineering space. And then my mom had had a couple of her own businesses. So I'd always seen it. I'd always been aware to it. Um, but I would say there never really was a time that I actually was like, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. It was really launched, you know, saw a need, launched a product, went on a two-year wild roller coaster um, and had a job lined up in financial markets on what's called Bay Street. It's kind of like the Canadian version of Wall Street. Um, you know, I was going to go trade um, bond derivatives there, which would have been fun. Um, but essentially was like, you know what? I love what I'm doing. Um, I think I got another company in me. Let's see what I can do with it. Worst case, I can always go get a job. So um, started that started my new company, Artemis. I've been doing Adam now for about two years. Um, actually, we hit our two-year anniversary, our birthday two days ago. Um, and yeah, it's been great racing venture capital um, and we've been building some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so that was one thing I was going to ask and I'm very curious on. When you exit a startup and, you know, you get to pocket some cash along with that exit and then you go for your second company, do you become your own benefactor, like your own VC in a sense? Uh, totally. Is that how you start? And it's in essence bootstrapped, but you're probably putting it in as an investment. Uh, like how does that Yes and no. I mean, it gets kind of complicated. How you, there's multiple ways you could do it. You could do it as an investment. You could do it as a shareholder loan. Um, but I basically funded the capital for the first nine months of the company. Um, it allowed us to hire on our first engineers, things like that. Um, but we raised our first round of capital in October of 2022. Um, so look, nine months after we had, I actually started the business. Um, but it took me about four months even to find a co-founder. So I knew I wanted to do this. Um, I knew the pain point was real. Um, and so I went, I learned as much as I could about the industry. I reconnected actually with a friend of mine from middle school who went and studied um, engineering at Waterloo, which is, you know, one of the better, you know, best universities in Canada uh, for computer engineering. He had experienced his pain point as well. And, you know, we kind of decided to go in on this company together and brought him on board and haven't really looked back since. Wow. That's incredible. I always ask people where they met their co-founders because it's another yeah. very hot topic when you're trying to found a company. It's like, okay, but totally. who should I do this with? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, full transparency, my first company I actually ran it with my girlfriend, um, which still together today, which is a, is a good testament. Oh um, yeah. I was going to ask, I was like, mm, are you still together? <laughs> yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, she's incredible. Um, she's more in the science background, but has like a, an incredible actionable brain. I like to call it. It's just very like, she does great operation sense. Um, and so running the company with your significant other is definitely an interesting dynamic. I don't know if I'd do it again, um, we learned a lot. I think it was a positive experience for us. We obviously had a positive exit at the end of it. Um, but it is a different vibe when you're bringing work into the personal life like that. Um, so I was, I made sure that said she was a different co-founder for my second one. Absolutely. What is she up to now? So she's actually just finishing up her degree because she, she was 17, I guess, when we started the business, well, basically 18. So, um, she's a year, year and a bit younger than me. So, um, she was quite young by the time we sold it, she was only in her second year of school. Um, so she's just wrapping up her, um, her undergrad right now in neuroscience, um, and business. Um, and she'd probably work in the, the neuroscience space. Absolutely. Wow. Talk about setting yourself up for success when you graduate. My God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, That's it was great. I mean, for, for me, you know, I put myself through at university and, you know, I went, you know, before that I was working as a parking attendant just to, you know, afford life. And it was crazy. I mean, being able to actually make money for the first time, 
take a profit. You know, I was able to finish school debt free, put me in a really good position. Um, you know, debt free with an exit, put me in a really good position to kind of have options. In in Canada, I know specifically, it, it's really hard to start a business because you need to have some sort of backing. Um, I can financially sustain myself for you know almost a year and a half before I need any outside capital. Um, that's even with an investment in the business, and so that really helped us longer term um, because I know a lot of I talk to founders all the time. Um, you know, and it's funny actually, a lot in New York City who are looking to start a company, and the first question I ask them is, "What's your personal runway?" And they go three months, and I go, "Don't quit your job. If, if you only have three months of runway, it's not the time to quit your job." Um, that's my opinion. Obviously, it's different for everybody. Um, but that, uh, I was really, really fortunate and blessed to be in that position. Absolutely. And I think that's another thing that just really isn't talked about when you're trying to make the decision, should I become a founder? Should I not? And I would say in college, when we start companies, it's a bit of a unique position because you aren't a full-time employee. Like you are Mm -hmm. going to school, that's your full-time job. And so you have the ability to take bigger risks and just kind of be like, I'm just going to try this and see what happens. Uh, it's scary mention, though. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I remember like for the first company, I remember it was two hundred dollars upfront, and that helped it. Like, it bought us a domain, got us a Wix site, and like we like we didn't even use shop. I didn't even know Shopify was a thing. So like we what we did for our first infrastructure was we had a Wix site with a PayPal button on it, and when we were out of stock, I would just like rem- I'd put a, a like a, another button over that PayPal button that didn't click anything. That was like the way we managed inventory. So we like oversell. Like, it was a whole thing. Um, super janky, but you know, that initial $200 investment, like I was really stressed. I was like, holy crap, like, if I don't get this back, like that could be a food budget. Like that's like you know, money was tight. Um, going into the tech space after that saying, all right, we're, you know, we're going to invest a few million into this project over the next five years, you know, raise venture capital from, from funds that's going to invest in this project to get it to a point that it can really service a larger audience, totally different mental framework that needed to happen. Um, but starting small, you know, even if it is $200, it's sometimes that can mean, mean a lot. It meant a lot to me at the time. Oh, absolutely. And I think too, you know, being a bootstrapped company, Mount was bootstrapped in the beginning too. I worked a few mm, jobs nice. to, to get it off the ground. And yeah. luckily, uh, I had a few grandpas who believed in me a little to throw me yeah. a few hundred dollars. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but yeah, having that mentality when we got our first huge, meaningful check and raised over a million dollars. One, that was like sticker shock in the bank account. I was like, holy shit, is this real? Uh, totally. But also I was like, oh, I don't really want to just go blow like 12 grand a month on rent for an office that we don't need, yep. merch we don't need. Like I'm going to really use this wisely and make sure every dollar I spend, I know how it's coming back or how it's going to produce value yeah. in the future. Totally. We um, So we just actually raised a million and a half US. Oh, congrats. Um, and thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't really publicly announced yet, but... Um, First thing we did was I hired on a head of ops. Um, she's fantastic. I've known her for a few years um, outside of this company. And first thing we did was we audited all of our financials. I cut our SaaS spend by I think forty percent. I think we cut our uh, you know infrastructure Azure spend by seventy percent. Um, and basically putting all these controls of anything over one hundred fifty dollars, we have to approve by the team. Um, all this sort of stuff because it's so easy to slip into the pattern of well we have the money in the bank so let's spend it. Um, especially in this market, you got to be smart with it. So we're, we're very tight on that and really believe in financial discipline. Absolutely. And I mean, we just kind of glossed over this, but the fact that you're able to raise in this environment, I would argue it's one of the toughest environments to raise right now, even if you are making revenue uh, and yeah. our, ser- our series A company, like it is impossible to get people to say yes. 
Um, mm-hmm. So mad props to you because that is not Thank happening you. often. <laughs> Thank you. It was a, it was, it was a long time. I mean, we took it, it took us about four and a half months to do it. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, like the white combinator back startups that do it in a week and a half or as they say. Um, so that was like a process. I think for us though, I'm glad that we had to raise in this environment. It was really sobering and it forced us to be honest or forced our investors to be honest with what they're expecting. Um, you know, rather than so many companies I know of that raised, you know, a massive round in 21 or 22 even before things started to turn. Um, and now there's no way they're ever going to meet that valuation. Um, or, you know, they don't know what to do with the money that they raised because, you know, they raised five million when they only needed one. Uh, you know, that happened, right? People took the money when they could. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a crazy process, but um, I'm happy we had to raise in this environment. I think it will only make it stronger moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if you can do it now, when the money gets back and gets easy, mm-hmm. it's kind of yeah. like a walk in the park. Uh, yeah. Would love to go back to your early college days uh, when it was just you and your girlfriend. Did you guys end up building a team or did you two, were you the ones able to run it the entire time? So we ran it the whole time. We had some like um, part-time help, um, but we were really strategic in how we ran it. So for instance, we had, we had a huge delivery on, right? So we were delivering on average 300 different boxes a week. So Sold a box at 100 bucks a box. We delivered 300 on average a week. You could do the math. Of course, it'd be about 30k a month in revenue. Um, so we scaled it pretty large. In terms of the, how we did it, was we started to build. You know, we noticed that the original plan was I was going to do it all by myself. So I was going to go around and deliver all these hand by hand. But then we realized, you know, there's a ton of people who want to help that want to be involved. And so what we did was we started reaching out to companies saying, "Hey, you have 50 employees." For every employee that comes and delivers box for us, for every box that they deliver, we'll donate another, we'll donate that delivery charge that we charge the customer to charity on, on your behalf. And what people saw was we already had a program. It was a social enterprise. So 100 bucks a box, 5% of that automatically went to charity, but you could double it if you donated the delivery fee to charity as well. And so we'd get companies to deliver them for us. So, you know, realtors, things like that, who had, you know, agents who weren't working, um, you know, we were forced to stay at home because of COVID, would come deliver for me two hours. We'd have 15 of them come by. They'd deliver the boxes in two, three hours. And, you know, we'd write, you know, a couple thousand dollar check um, to a local charity that week. Um, so that was, you know, we had to think of ways to do that because we were cash constrained. Um, but yeah, it was just the two of us for uh, until the end. Wow. That's honestly incredibly creative and also a good way to give back to the community. So props yeah. to you guys for that one. Thanks. Yeah, it was, um, you know, we really believe... You know, we grew up in families that, you know, charitable giving is, is a large part of what we do. And for us, you, you know, it's one of the afterthoughts, but when economies get depressed um, or, you know, head into slip into more recessionary rules, charitable giving gets hit first, right? It's one of the first line items that people take off their, you know, when good times are good, sure, I can donate 5% of my income. Like when times are bad, I'm keeping all that for, for you know, yourself, which is not a, you know, it's not a judgment. It's not a bad thing. It's just the reality. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we were still able to, to support those organizations, um, you know, as things were kind of sliding during COVID. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that, that's really great to hear that that was going on. Um, one thing that I think is on my mind, and not sure how much you're able to say about this topic, but it would be interesting to dive into how you got your business to a place where it could be acquired and then how that happened. Like, did someone just reach out and was like, I want to buy your business or were you actively looking to get it bought? Both. So we, we had a couple of offers like throughout the years um, just because we were really tied into the community. But 
basically we both were moving out. It, it was a pretty local business. We looked at franchising it. The legal lift to do that was too big for what we wanted to do with it. I had started kind of building the company Artemis that I'm working at now. Um, and we kind of thought, you know what, we did this for two years. We have, you know, we kind of have bigger ambitions for the things, but it's still a huge part of the local ecosystem. Can we give it or, you know, sell it to somebody local who can manage it? Cause we were both moving out of that city. Um, and so with the product and the business, we had a lot of relationships with local businesses, right? Cause we were reselling their products for them. And so we had built really deep relationships because a lot of them, you know, during the really hard months when everything first shut down, we were keeping the lights on at a few of these companies because the revenue went to zero overnight. Um, and so we reached out to a bunch of them and said, Hey, you know, here's percentages of the businesses, you know, all that sort of stuff. Business is growing, volumes growing, this and the other. The reason we want out is because we're leaving. Um, if you're interested, let us know. I think we sent it out to about 70. We got about 10 people interested, um, four or five of which signed NDAs went through the process and we got a couple offers out of that. Wow. That's incredible. And when you do yeah. a process like that, just cause I feel like our listeners, you know, some might be building towards an acquisition. Um, when you get a few offers, is it kind of like when you fundraise that you can leverage them and get a bigger number because there's more players yeah. involved? Yes. And no, I mean, it depends. I think in our case, we actually took one of the smaller ones because we believed in the people more um, rather than what they wanted we had built a pretty good customer base, right? And so we had one offer that people were like, hey, we're just going to essentially just, we're buying your email list and your customer base and we're going to deprecate the product and what it stands for in a few years anyways. Um, or it was like within a year. So there's that. I think one, the number one advice I'd give to people running a process is make sure that you're upfront with the reality of the business. We actually set it up so that when we met with everybody as a part of our package for what the business had, we had like a, a you know, a, almost like a issues in the business document where we had listed 10 things that we said, hey, here are the things that worry us about the business and keep us up at night. You got to know this now because that's, if you don't and you find this out two days before, you're not going to, you're not going to purchase it, right? And if you're not interested based on these things, we want to know now rather than spending two months of our time, thousands of dollars in legal fees to get to a point and have you back out. That I honestly think was the main difference as to why it actually got sold because you know, businesses always have issues underneath, right? There's always things that you are worried about. That's just, that's the reality of business. Um, and I know a lot of founders who did do that. And unfortunately, the deals fell through because, you know, they didn't know about some debt sheet that you had, or, you know, they didn't know that, you know, one part of your business was actually dropping 30% month over month instead of growing, right? Might not be a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but when they find that out a week before purchasing it, that's going to change their, you know, they're already in a, in a way um, freaked out about buying it. Purchasing companies is one of those things that it's such a long process that you almost have buyer's remorse while still buying it. So it's a very interesting emotional process. Um, and, you know, depending on the size, it can mean a lot for people. You know, there's a lot of money changing hands. So people are always more aware, I guess, of the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's so good to know too. And I, I kind of think fundraising is is semi-similar too, where... totally investors will drag you through due diligence and then find out one risk that they think is going to end the whole thing. And then they step away and they're like, sorry, we're not investing anymore. Um, yeah. And you well, I think too, I mean, your time. It, it, it's so similar in terms of, you know, fundraising, you're essentially selling your company. You're just selling a portion of it. Yeah. That's no, really a very it. good way to look at it. Um, you know, you're just not selling all of it. Right. Whereas an acquisition is you're selling everything. So, 
And, you know, I guess acquisition, it's a bit different because they got to live with it and they got to build on it and all that sort of stuff, but, and they're going to operate it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's similar in that process, in that kind of ideology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one interesting thing I like to ask all of our uh, guests, just because we all went to different colleges, is what were some of the resources that were around you when you were building your company? Yeah. So, Gualbox, not a lot from the university standpoint. Um, there weren't a lot of resources that we used or I leveraged. Obviously, I got some promotional material from them. Um, you know, with them, I don't know, giving us blog posts, things like that. Um, but it was also different because the company was located and really based in a town that wasn't actually related to the university I went to. It was different. Um, so that, that was interesting. I think as well, though, for my second company, I actually started out of an incubator at my university. So at Carlton, they had this thing called the Innovation Hub. Um, I think I got like $10,000 as like an, a grant, basically, to start the company. Um, I was on track to graduate a semester early. And so I was supposed to graduate in December of 21, even though like my class graduation was May of 2022. And so they were like, hey, if you stay an extra semester, then you thought, we'll, um, we'll give you 10,000 bucks and we'll give you a course credit to run your company. And I was like, okay. So I started that. Um, funny enough, the, our new hire head of ops was the girl who started and built that incubator um, at Carleton. So that was a full circle moment. I've been trying to recruit her for a long time. So very happy she finally came on board. Um, but yeah, it's you know, nice to see how it all kind of wraps up together. Absolutely. That's fun. I mean, there's definitely people on my, my list of dream hires that I've still been circling totally. for years now. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating what the universities will do just to support you as a student of theirs. And, you know, it looks good and it's a win-win when you have a positive startup outcome because you're an alumni of their college now. Um, 100%, 100%, yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah. at Northeastern, I got to go spend six months on Mount mm, cool. and not go to school. It was called their co-op program. Normally you go work nice. for an established business, but yeah. uh, they let me work for myself. And that was fascinating because I had to, I got to feel like what it was gonna be like full-time going on my venture. I had to self-manage myself and my schedule. And I mean, I could have easily slacked off and, and done nothing for those six months. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead, you know, I really went to work. I was like, okay, if I'm going full-time after graduation, what is this really going to look like? It gave me the opportunity to, to apply to some accelerators, which I did get into. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of how Mount got off the ground, nice, uh, which was nice. nice. How did you, um, how did you find like building, you know, your first business in Boston, right? Like being in that area, you know, obviously it's more academic. how did you find that? Very academic. And also it is the health tech hub of the U.S. for startups. So very medical focused. Um, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I think being at Northeastern was kind of like a little community in and of itself in that Northeastern is very entrepreneurial. Like that is just what they put out there and that's who they bring to the school. So I think at my time at Northeastern, I got over probably $100,000 in different competitions and installments wow. of free money that I never had to give back. That's incredible. And they were just like, we see the vision. So that was incredibly helpful. And I, I do like to tell other students, like you don't have to even go to the college that has the program in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. like you can still enter and they'll let you participate. Like I was in ASU's startup pitch competition for some random no reason, uh, didn't win it, but they were giving away a heck of a lot of cash. It was crazy. Wow. Um, wow. So well, it's funny actually, Northeastern has, has a campus here in Vancouver actually. Um, I know Northeastern is to, these satellite campuses. <laughs> yeah, I've been to a few events there, so it's pretty funny. 
Uh, oh, that's Northeastern, awesome. Northeastern's a great school. I love Boston, so I, I go quite a bit. But Yeah, they're definitely driving into the ecosystem for sure. And I mean, Northeastern also with this co-op program, what I did for my first co-op, because you get to do a few of them, is I had applied to work at a startup accelerator called Mass Challenge uh, and got a, I you know went through the interview process, got the job. And so for six months, I was working at a startup accelerator. I was in charge of some of the application process. So getting startups to apply, chatting with them, talked to over like 600 founders in the health tech space, uh, which wow. was fascinating because they were all series A companies. They were a bit bigger. Yeah. Um, and I felt like I learned so much so quickly just from that yeah. work experience. I was like, wow, thank totally. you. <laughs> I mean, you must have learned even just problem statement, right? What founders are missing when they're trying to pitch their company, what they have nailed, you know, all that sort of stuff. You must have learned a lot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, how they fundraise, how they, that specific accelerator had them working with partners they probably otherwise couldn't. So like huge hospitals and stuff. So mm -hmm. it's interesting to see how you are such a small company, but are able to work with such a big corporation and like what that process looks like. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it was just all around like a crash course in entrepreneurship. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, it was super cool. Um Josh, when you look back at both of your founder experiences and the one that's like going on right now, were there any oh shit moments where it's like, hmm, I don't know if this is going to work? <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, lots of those. Um, I mean, with the first company, I kind of hinted at it, but you know, we looked at franchising, right, and build the business from a franchising model. Um, it didn't work <laughs> straight up. That that was a failure. Um, but that was we had we had signed a few agreements with some cities and some people in those cities. We saw some really good opportunities. We were like had already modeled the cash flows and all that sort of stuff in the business model, um, and then seeing it all kind of crash down and go, "Oh, you're actually not going to quadruple revenue this year. You're just you know you're going to double it, which is great." But you know what I mean? Like you kind of fabricate that idea in your mind. Um, that was pretty wild. Um, you know, in this company, there's been a lot of you know oh shit moments. I think. You know, first, you know, my co-founder is incredible. Um, you know, we have that baseline trust and, you know, he does a lot of, he obviously, he owns product and I own a lot more of the business side and fundraising stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, until recently we were, we were living off of, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in the bank max. Like that was like the maximum we'd have. We'd have, you know, under a hundred K, which for a startup is not a lot. Um, it can get you obviously somewhere, but. You know, it's not, a, you know, that's not a couple years of runway where you can actually think about a longer plan to execute. It's very short term based. And so, you know, with, you know, the industry we're in, we're in the data industry, it's accelerating so quickly with all these AI tools that are coming out. Um, and so, you know, we built something, and then, you know, OpenAI would release something really, oh shit, like it's not preparing us today, but that could, you know, if you go down the line of thinking of where this will go, we'll be, well, we'll be crushed. So, like, how do we kind of change it and actually solve a different problem or, solve the same problem in a better way or all that sort of stuff. Um, lots of moments like that, lots of highs and lows. I'm sure, you know, during fundraising, you know, with your experience as well, you probably have that as well of you get down the line with somebody you really want them to come in and they say no, right. Those, oh, those yeah. moments are really tough. Um, Very humbling when they say no, but they tell you why. <laughs> and they're like, I just don't believe totally, in the idea. <laughs> totally. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I had calls when I was, I was talking to a fund and just in the call, he stops me about halfway through the pitch and he goes, I see little to no value in this, so I'm a pass, but thank you though. And Wait, yes, I had like, something so similar and it was yeah. honestly kind of pissed me off on the call and I wanted to end it because we're in the Airbnb short-term rental mm -hmm. space. And this, yeah. I was going through legitimate market statistics where I'm like, these are not my fabricated numbers. Like there are right. 
studies out there that make these statistics real. And I was going through the statistics on how they all correlate and like yeah. what the market size was. And he turns to his partner next to him, who's an Airbnb host. And he's like, do you think these are real? And I'm like, well, first of all, you could have just asked me, but clearly you aren't trusting a woman in this scenario. Right. <laughs> uh, right. But then second, yeah, he was like, yeah, there's just no way these numbers are real. Like, I just don't even see this as being a problem. Like, this isn't how Airbnb hosts operate, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes, from your vast knowledge of being a host, which he was not. Right. Uh, and right. I just basically on that call was like, I, one, don't want you as an investor now because of all of this. Totally. You know, bias you just threw right out there and i ended up ending the call which is a nice thing to remember like you as the founder yeah. of the power not the investor totally totally uh, but very yeah humbling. it's uh, <laughs> very humbly i the the analogy i use i actually i spoke to an entrepreneurship class back at carlton about this and, and i was I, I was talking to them and i was saying you know i asked everybody anybody here play competitive sports most people you know 75 percent of them put up their hand i was like okay anybody here been cut from the competitive sports teams that they wanted to make you know, 65% of the class put up their hand. And I said, that feeling when you're running up trying to raise money for a business, you will feel that multiple times a day, the feeling of being cut from a team. And it sucks, but you have to structure your fundraising in a way that you're not going to like, you You have, just have to go to the next meeting because it's in 20 minutes. So you don't have time to think about it. Um, but that idea of, you know, you have to build that that harder shell, I guess, in terms of, there's a million different reasons why investors don't invest in you. More often than not, it has nothing to do with you. It's to do with they invested in a portfolio company that might be in the same industry. They are maybe in fund, you know, year, year six or seven of a fund cycle, and they need, you know, an investment that they can turn around and get money out in two or three years. They're not going to invest in a pre-seed company. They're going to invest in a Series A or Series B company, right? Like there's all these factors that have nothing to do with you and your idea. Um, doesn't make those no any no's any easier, though. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that yeah. was so wise. I feel like I need to go put that on a note card and just remember it. <laughs> I'm like, this yeah. is how fundraising works. I've yeah. never yeah. heard anyone describe it like that. That was incredible. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's painful, but you also learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about the business. Um, yeah, and and you know, I, I try to have fun with it. You know, I try to you know throw in crazy ideas and just see what what limits I can push. Um, so yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you know, have fun with it at some point. I like that. Yeah. It's funny. My friends joke that I have the memory of a goldfish because I, yeah. I, for the life of me, just, I think I've trained myself to just not remember the negative feedback because if you did, you'd never get anywhere. Yeah. And I think like, there's also like, you know, where uh, we have one person on our team here that goes, unless you hear it three times, it's not, it's not worth it. And there's, you know, obviously there's some caveats and some exceptions to that rule, but what I do love about it though, was when we were fundraising, you know, if I heard the same thing two or three times, I would change my pitch based on that feedback. You know, vision isn't big enough. Here once, it's a selective thing. Here three times, it's not. Got to fix it. Um, so there, you, you kind of have to come up with a measurement system for yourself of what's the frequency in which I need to hear something in order to actually institutionalize it, you know, change something and make an impact um, versus what's that one person's opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you're like you said, in like gems, Josh. Oh my gosh. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's similar to that investor that you met with, right? This, you know, one person might, you know, act like they have an idea of how the Airbnb host market works, but in reality, you know nothing. But if you have ten people say that who are all hosts, okay, maybe you got to change the statistics for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, but that uh, that continuity, I guess, changes how the impact is actually felt. Yeah, absolutely. And it was funny too in that call because he turned to that Airbnb host that was on the call and asked, yeah. 
And that Airbnb host validated the metrics and that this does happen and all the time. And he still wasn't having it. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation to, you know, venture capital and, you know, wanting to know things, but you know, maybe another time. Yes. For, for the, for the next podcast. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Josh, we're getting towards the end of our time. Uh, I like to keep these kind of short and snappy, but yeah. is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Maybe what your uh, future plans for Artemis is, and then if you have any like last, last uh, gems of wisdom to drop. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really excited about where Artemis is heading. We're I think the world's moving into this place, especially within the data and AI world, where we're actually able to automate and actually do the work that a lot of people for the longest time had to do manually. Um, and so, you know building tools that analyze data for you, that's been done, but it hasn't really because it's still humans building those models then just repackage and sell them. But actually selling systems, you know, we're moving in the area that our system will be able to, in real time, based on your input, build a model and pull data from all your data sets to build the perfect answer. A um, lot of cool innovation happening there. If you're in the data space, please reach out. We're always interested to talk to people about that. Um, in terms of founders though, and you know, student founders, one thing I always say to people is, Careers are long. Remember that? Yeah, I, there was times when I felt like my career was over and I had to go back and get like, dude, chill, you're 22. Like, you're 21. You're good. Like, you have 40, 50 years ahead of you here. Um, on the flip side, remember that careers are long, so don't burn bridges. Um, I have lots of friends who have burned bridges who, you know, unfortunately will, won't get those back. You have no idea who you're going to work with in two years. You have no idea who's going to be an investor on your cap table in a decade. Um, as a, as a student, that was that was something I had to learn is play the long game, be the bigger person, um, just because you have no idea what changes in life. Um, but yeah, that's that's one thing I'd say, especially to student founders. Absolutely. That's not one yet I've heard. So that was honestly a great piece of new advice uh, that our listeners can take away. Um, Josh, thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. It was thanks amazing to, to hear your story our first ever exited founder plus a new new founder as well. Uh, and we'll link everything in the show notes. So if people want to find Artemis, we'll link your website. They want to contact you on LinkedIn. We'll li link that as well. Um, but, you know, Perfect. other than that, thanks, everyone. It was, a, it was a good show.